adore you in this place, Lord. Who can compare, Lord, to you? Lord, we know there's nothing. There's no one besides you, Lord. It's you and you alone, Lord. Lord, as we pray to hear your word, Lord, I ask that um, you would tune our hearts, Lord, to hear from you this morning. Lord, that your word would speak to our hearts, be ready to, to receive and to be a doer of your word. Lord, we just thank you for your presence here. We just ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you take your seats? Wow, we are blessed. We are blessed. What worship. As humans, we wrestle with fundamental questions like, why do people struggle with issues? Why do we struggle with issues like fear, worry, depression, anger, unforgiveness? Why do people, why do we do some of the things that we do? Do. And this leads to the age-old question that asks, is human nature innately good or is human nature innately evil? And in answering these questions, it is imperative that we come to a biblical conclusion about human nature. So what I want to do here at the very beginning of this message, you guys got to get ready to write, and, and we're jumping right in quickly. I have to go through verse, 10 verses this morning, um, but we're going to look at five different views that people have held in the centuries about human nature. And the first view says that human nature is good, that human nature naturally is good. Politicians espouse this perspective all the time when they say that humans are innately good within themselves. We can trust in the human spirit, they say. But this idea is not new as Pelagian, a British monk who lived in the 400s, said that humanity was born good. They were created, he said, in the image of God. He said that goodness inside humanity allows them to serve and glorify God without help from the Holy Spirit. That's what Pelagian believed. Pelagian believed that we become sinners because we sin. He didn't believe we inherited the sin of Adam. The second view says that human nature is neutral. That human nature is neutral. This view says that people are neither good nor bad when they're born. They start out like an empty tablet ready to be written on. A blank slate, if you may. They would say humanity is shaped by the environment around them. It's not what's inside them that's the issue, but it's the people, the culture, the family, the friends, and the experiences that influence them to become good or evil. The third view 
says human nature is both good and bad. This perspective says that humanity has a struggle going on between good and evil all the time. It's almost like those cartoons that we used to watch as kids where you had the angel on one shoulder, right? And you had the devil on the other shoulder and they were both whispering in the person's ears trying to get them to go in whatever direction that they were trying to influence them with. That's the third perspective. The fourth view says that human nature is sinful. Human nature is sinful. This view says that man is affected by sin from head to toe. Sin is the root cause for all other problems. Why does someone struggle with things like fear, guilt, shame, lust, etc.? Well, the short answer is sin was somewhere. This view says that we inherited the sin nature from Adam and Eve. This perspective says that unbelievers are not just, they're not sick, they're dead spiritually. That means there is no battle going on between good and evil between individuals before they come to Christ. They're dead spiritually, they're still living in their sin. And then finally, the fifth view says that human nature does not exist. That human nature does not exist. And this is modern psychology. This takes sin out of the equation altogether. This perspective says that people are born as biological beings without a spiritual component. So there's no soul or eternal nature a part of Man, this view says all of mankind's problems are based either on the environment or genetics. They use words like wounded, unmet needs, false self, low self-esteem, or chemical imbalances to name a few. And let me say most churches in the world today, have been saturated and influenced with this philosophy that they espouse psychology from the pulpit every week. This is why in most churches, sin is not the problem anymore. They have become psychologized from the congregation to the leadership. But that's another whole other sermon, so I won't get into that anymore. So which view is correct Which view, when I say is correct, is which view is biblical? And the answer is the fourth view, which says human nature is sinful. Human nature is sinful. And this brings us to our verses this morning. Ephesians 2 is where we'll be. You can open your Bibles to Ephesians 2. And we're going to start out in verses 1 through 3 this morning. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, which reveals our nature. Let's pray as we begin this morning. Holy Father, we praise you, we honor you. Father, we thank you that your word speaks clarity to our life's issues, Father. We recognize that we struggle, that we struggle daily in our lives, that we have issues going on in our marriages, in our family life, in our parenting, in everything that's going on. So, Father, we ask that you continue to transform us into the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ. We love you. We ask, Father, as we dive into your word, that you will illuminate our hearts and our eyes will be open to you and that we'll have a higher view of you and we'll have a right perspective of ourselves this morning. 
We love you and praise you. It's through Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're going to have a timeout for a second here. That should be better. Okay, checking, checking. Okay. We got that figured out. We're in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. And it says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul reminds the Ephesians before they followed Christ that they were really good, that they were unique. Paul says that they were very special. He goes on and says what? That they are perfect just the way they were born. Is that what our verses say? No. No, Paul does not say that they are good, nor does he say that they are even sick spiritually. Paul clearly says that they were dead because they were controlled by their sinful nature. So the question is, who are we before we were saved? Well, let's look back at verse 3. Verse 3 says, we all lived like In rebellion against God, we all were dead in our sins, it says. And this leads to point number one. Point number one says we all start out evil. Point number one says we all start out evil. And this has been what the church has believed for 2,000 years until you get to our time when people do not understand basic scriptures. Have you ever thought of yourself as evil? I know some of us think of our spouses (laughs) as evil or our neighbors as evil, but Scripture says here that we were evil and we still struggle with being evil even as Christians Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I was going to sing it, but my voice is a little scratchy. So um, Christ says he saved wretches like me and you, the Bible teaches. Again, wretches aren't other people. It's not our in-laws. It's us, the Bible says. But let's look at a few of these passages that reveal how evil we truly are. So the first passage I want to jump into is Proverbs twenty-two, fifteen. Proverbs twenty-two, fifteen. Proverbs twenty-two, fifteen says, "Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him." What a great parenting passage. But the word here for folly comes from the original Hebrew word that means evil. So you could say evil is bound up or tied in to the heart of humanity from childhood is what we could 
get from that passage. But let's go to another one. Let's go to Genesis 8.21. You might have to just write some of these references down. But Genesis 8.21, now this is right after the flood. This is after um, the, the floods have subsided. And we have Noah. He is sacrificing to God. And do we remember why God destroyed the earth? Because man's, what, wickedness, right? They're evil, it says. But listen to what happens after Noah made this sacrifice to God. Listen to what it says. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from youth or evil from childhood is what you could espouse from that passage. So after God destroys the earth because of man's wickedness, God concludes anyway that man is still wicked, he says. That sort of confuses me. But again, humanity without the Holy Spirit is evil, the Bible says. Romans, turn to Romans 8, 7 through 8. Romans 8, 7 through 8. This is the Apostle Paul. He's talking to the church of Rome. And he says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's laws. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Well, the question is, who is it that's in the flesh? Every person that's not following Christ is still being led by their flesh, right? They don't have the Spirit living inside them. Paul says that it's not that they don't want to follow the Lord, even though they don't. It says they cannot. It's impossible. They are controlled by their sinful nature, which means the only thing they can do is sin against God. Scripture is clear. That mankind is naturally evil before they turn to Christ. But we have to continue to move on because we have 10 verses to get through. But we're still in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. So let's go back to our main text. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And it says this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now remember, When Paul wrote this, he is writing this to the general churches. So he's talking to all the churches of who they were, right? So why do we all start out evil? Why do we all start out evil? Well, let's look back at verse 2. Verse 2 says what? We followed the world and we followed the prince of the air, right, among it says that those were the disobedient spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So who is the prince of the air? That would be Satan, right? So we're controlled by the world, following the world. We're following Satan. And then verse 3 says, verse 3 tells us we lived for the passions of the flesh or sinful nature or carnal nature, whatever version you're reading from. So other words, we were controlled by our flesh or sinful nature. So why were we evil? Point number two. 
Point number two says we live for Satan, the world, and the flesh. We live for Satan, the world, and the flesh. That's why we were evil. We see from these passages that Satan and the world work outside of us, right? And it says that the flesh works inside of us. That means in marriages, it's much worse than communication issues or personality differences. Your spouse is not your enemy. The world, flesh, and Satan are. What is the problem with people's behaviors? Paul says they are controlled by the passions of their flesh. What is the problem with the child-parent relationship? The flesh, Satan, and the world. Do we see a pattern? Do we recognize our enemies this morning? Well, let's go back to our main text. And we're in Ephesians 2, verse 3. Verse 3 says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. It says here that we were by nature children of wrath. Well, whose wrath? I know we've discussed this in the past, but we may have forgotten whose wrath. Well, think about it. If we're following the world, following Satan, controlled by the passions of the flesh, then we are under the wrath of God, right? The wrath of God. And I know, I know, I know, I'm really preaching and encouraging, uplifting. Everybody's really excited about hearing about this, right? But the reality of it is we have to understand the bad news in order to clearly understand and celebrate the good news. This is just plain scripture. And honestly, I'm going to go off on a tangent a little bit here, but honestly, most of the time the gospel is presented in the church in such a superficial way that most people walk down the altar, raise a hand to be saved, and they don't even understand their own condition as a sinner. They don't understand. I mean, how many of us knew that we were enemies of God, controlled by Satan, the world, and the flesh, and under the wrath of God, we gave our lives to Christ? This is the basics. This is the basics of the Bible. And for some reason, it's not preached. We need to understand the basics to truly embrace the gospel and become believers in Christ. We have to understand who we are before we are Christians. That's why Paul reminded the Corinthian, I mean the Ephesians. Okay, but I digress and I get back on The passages now. Ephesians 2, and now we're in verses 4 and 5. Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. And it says this. This is where it turns amazing. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. So Paul reminds the Ephesians, as I remind us, that you and me, while we are dead in our sins, God says he made us alive in Christ anyway. What was the motivation? Well, let's look back at verse 4. His great love for us. His great love for us. Point number three says, God's love gave rebels like us life in Christ. 
Christ. Point number three says God's love gave rebels like us life in Christ. God in his love was motivated to save us while we ran towards our sin. Like Eve who was dialed in on that fruit, she thought when she ate that fruit, she would be like God, the scriptures say. And we should not be so deceived ourselves because our sin is no different, is no different than Eve's as it gave us the deception that we could depend on ourselves, that we could control our own destinies, that we could create our own pleasures, or we could make an Enough money to find true security outside of God. We thought we could do all these things without the sovereign dependence on our Lord Jesus Christ. Yet, yet, God saved poor, blind, and evil sinners like us with his eternal, perfect, and patient love, the scriptures say. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. God's love was poured out on us in the sacrifices of his Son, Jesus Christ, while we were still his enemies, the Scripture says. We talk about loving our children and how we would die for them, but would we die for our enemies? Would we sacrifice our sons and daughters for those who dislike us or for those who actually hate us and want to kill us? Because that's what God did for us. That's what he did for us. Let's go back to our main text, Ephesians 2, verses 6 and 7. Ephesians 2, verses 6 and 7. We're more than halfway through. All right, and it says this, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show his incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. God raised us up with Christ, which means we are now alive to Christ and now dead to sin, the scriptures say. Turn with me to Romans 6. 11, Romans 6.11 clearly says this. It says this. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, does that mean that Christians no longer sin? Are we now perfect in Christ? Well, positionally, yes. Positionally, we are now perfect because of Christ's righteousness that has been reckoned to us or imputed to us, right? We're justified positionally before the Father because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. But, 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 if we ask our spouse or a close friend or family member if we are perfect... If we are perfect, they may chuckle or they may sneer because they recognize how flawed we still are in the flesh. We struggle with sin, brothers and sisters. That's why grace is so amazing. 
So what does it mean to actually be alive in Christ then? What does that mean? Well, alive to Christ means we have the Holy Spirit now living in us as believers. We now can follow God instead of the flesh. We now can love others with the love of Christ. We now can control our thinking to honor Christ. We now can conquer our addictions and our other sins that have had such a foothold in our lives for so long. But more than that, because now we desire to know God, we now want to obey his truths. We now can please God. We now have the ability to glorify him. We now can have fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We now are children of God. Amen? Point number four says, we are now alive to Christ and dead to sin. Point number four says, we are now alive to Christ and dead to sin. I wonder how many of us live like we are alive to Christ and dead to sin. Alive in Christ means he reigns supreme over our marriages. Alive in Christ means he shines bright in our friendships. Alive in Christ means he rules our households. Alive in Christ means he unites us as a church body and we are a lighthouse to Marco Island. I wonder how many of us are alive in Christ this morning. Let's go back to our main text. And we are just cruising through this. We'll be at least done by three. Okay. And we're in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. And this is probably one of the most known and famous passages in all of Scripture outside of John three sixteen, And it says this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. This is good news. But, This is the good news, right? So the question is, did we contribute anything to our salvation? Did we contribute anything to why we are saved this morning? I see people shaking their heads, no. But the answer is yes. We definitely did contribute something. We contributed to the sin that caused our Savior, Jesus Christ, to be crucified on a cross on our behalf so we could receive grace. So the next question is, how were we saved? Is it through good works? Like loving others, feeding the poor, being disciplined in reading the Bible, praying, serving the church, being an active and upright citizen in Marco Island? Do these actions save us? No, right? No, Paul says, no. In verse 9 he says, if that was the case, we would have a reason to what? Boast, right? Boast. We would be able to get to heaven and say, God, I'm here, and I did this, and I did this, and I did this, and I did that, and I did this, and I did this, and I, can I please have my ticket into heaven because you owe me, right? We can't do that. We can't do that because verse 8 says what? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, a gift of God. God. Point number five says, God saves us by his grace through faith. Point number five says, God saves us by his grace through faith. Grace means, as we've talked about many times, unmerited or undeserved 
favor of God. Grace is a free gift to sinners. Instead of hell, God says, you know what? I'm going to give you heaven, but more than that, I'm going to give you a relationship with me for all eternity. That is good news. That is good news. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, the whole essence of the teaching at this point and everywhere in the New Testament, the whole glory of salvation, that though we deserve nothing but punishment, hell, and banishment out of the sight of God for all eternity, yet God of his own Love and grace and wondrous mercy has granted us this salvation. Now that is the entire meaning of grace. Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers, says, Because God is gracious, therefore sinful man is forgiven, converted, purified, and saved. It is not because of anything in us or that ever can be in them. They are saved. But because of the boundless love, the goodness, pity, compassion, mercy, and grace of God. Wow. What love, what patience, what generosity God has granted all of us. So I wonder, how often do we celebrate such grace that we have in Christ? Do we wake up with a little hop in our step knowing we are accepted fully and wholly by the God of the universe? Do we show this love, this grace to others? Does our family members experience this grace that we have received in Christ Jesus? What if I asked a friend, a spouse, a family member, if they would describe you as a grace giver, what would they say? Let me read that again. What if I asked a friend, a spouse, or a family member, if they would describe you as a grace giver, what would they say? Let's get back to our main passages, and we're in our final passage, Ephesians 2, verse 10. Ephesians 2, verse 10. And Paul wraps it up. By saying this, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And this is where we differ with the Catholic teachings, because the Catholics would say that faith plus works equals justification. Faith plus works equals justification, but we believe the evangelical church, the Protestant church, says that faith equals justification and it has nothing to do with works. Though we believe that when a person is truly saved, they will have works, but it doesn't save them. But I will say on the opposite end of the spectrum, of the Catholics, there are those in the evangelical world, especially in our time, that believe Christians don't have to have good works at all. Their view is this. They, they say that a person can turn to Christ and never show any fruit at all in their lives. They can live in rebellion for the rest of their lives just as long as they walked an altar and believe that Jesus is their Savior. And I will tell you, that, that 
position is not in Scripture as well. Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Luke 6, 46 says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? And we could look all over the, the Bible and see this. We see it in James where it says what? If you, don't, if, you don't, if, faith, if you have faith without works, it's what? It's dead. It says it's dead. Point number six says true faith is alive. Point number six says true faith is alive. We believe in being justified by faith alone, but that faith is active, living Think about it. When someone's justified in, their, in faith, that means the Holy Spirit comes down and indwells them. God lives in them. And you're telling me that it won't change their life? John MacArthur says the same power that created us in Christ Jesus empowers us to do good works for which he has redeemed us. These are verifiers of true salvation. Righteous attitudes and righteous acts proceed from the transformed life now living in the heavenlies. To the Corinthians, Paul said, there was in them an abundance of every good deed. 2 Corinthians 9.8 To Timothy, he instructed that the believers is equipped for every good work, 2 Timothy 3.17. Christ died to bring to himself a people zealous, it says, for good deeds, Titus 2.14. So scripture teaches that we will have good works. So what does this act of faith look like? What does this act of faith look like? We could give a lot of answers for this, but I think Jesus sums it up best when he says to love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. May we love God first and foremost and love others as ourselves. That's part of the dilemma, the curse. What a challenge. What a battle that that we have, but we have the Holy Spirit, right, living inside of us, the Scriptures teach us to allow us to love others like we love ourselves. And remember, love for others and love for self is a focus that we have on self, right? How focused I am in my family, it means I'll be that focused for Miss Vicky. That's what the Bible teaches, that I will be that focused on her life as well as my life. That's the love we're talking about, that I will be celebrating with her when things go really well, and I'll be mourning with her when things are going really bad, like I would with my own family. That's the love that Jesus is talking about here. God's Word says that we're not alone, though, as it says in Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We are not alone. So in conclusion, we've discussed who we were before we followed Christ. Scripture says it clearly that we were evil. But God didn't leave us in that horrible, dead, pathetic state. It says he chose us, he saved us by his grace through faith alone. Those who have turned to him in faith and repentance, we are now changed by the Holy Spirit forever, to the point that now we are part of God's handiwork and we're 
prepared. He's prepared works in advance for us to do. So now our job is to be an instrument of his for the rest of our lives until we live with him for all eternity. That's what we're called to do. That's what our purpose is. To the point that instead of being dead, we are now alive in Christ. And he has given us a love and a desire to glorify him and love others. What a gracious God we serve this morning who poured out his grace and love for us. As we end, please stand everyone. And I'll pray for us and then we will have everyone is dismissed and we can go to the potluck. Holy Father, wow, we are in awe, or we should be in awe of how gracious you've been to us, recognizing that we were controlled by Satan, controlled living for the world, controlled by our flesh, and you saved us out of that mess. We are your enemies, and you saved us. Help every one of us to clearly remember who we were before we followed Christ. Help it to be etched in our minds, so that grace that we receive every day does not get old. We don't get numb to it. We are in awe of your grace. And that regardless of what's going on in our lives, we are excited about who you are and that we're going to hold on to you and trust you even through the worst of struggles because you are a great God that we can trust in. Father, help us as a church to lift you high, to make your name known, and to be people who have a right perspective of you and a right perspective of ourselves and others. We love you and praise you through Christ's name. Amen.